Well, so good to be with everybody today. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn to or power on to First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, we are roughly about halfway through this series that we've been walking through together this fall. So if you're brand new to our church family, we are just uh, walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, through this epistle in the New Testament, which is really just a letter uh, called First Peter. And so as you're turning there, kind of getting settled in, uh, guys, I just want you to know that uh, two weeks away is going to be our men's night. Uh, anybody excited about men's night? All right. Yeah. Uh, October the 28th from Friday night from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, we, uh, I'm praying that we'll have close to 2,000 men in this room. This is not just for men in our church. This is for men across our city. And so, man, make those last minute invites. Uh, I promise you, uh, we're going to have a ton of fun together. Uh, whenever we, we get together, we're going to have some really good food. Uh, there's going to be some cool cars, uh, you know, on the campus. But most importantly, here's what I'm praying for. Uh, I'm praying that there would be a group of uh, men that we gather in this room and that God would speak and capture their hearts and they would never stay the same. I mean, you get that many guys in a room together and if God shows up, man, big things can happen. So can I ask uh, the guys, scan the QR code, sign up if you haven't already, uh, invite uh, that last minute friend to come with you. And ladies, could I just ask you uh, to just join us between now and then just to be praying. And maybe even that evening from Friday night from 5 p.m. to 11 p.m., would you just be praying that God would move in the lives of these guys? Man, you, you change 2,000 men's hearts, man, uh, something dramatic will really happen. All right, so we're looking forward to that. And uh, uh, today we are continuing on in this series called The Foreigners. You know, um, several years ago, I was on an international flight headed back to Indianapolis that did not go well. Any of you ever been on that flight? And so we line up at the gate and we're ready to board and they come on and they hear the dreaded words that you just never want to hear right when you're getting ready to board the plane. This flight is delayed, you know. And so we're, we all go and we sit down Then they come back on and they say, hey, we're having some mechanical issues with the flight and this plane uh, isn't going to be able to take off. But don't worry, we're going to get you on the backup plane which does not instill a lot of confidence. I don't know, like anytime I watch the Indy 500, the backup car is never as good, all right? So they said, um, uh, we gotta put you on a bus and we're gonna take you to the far side of the tarmac where the backup plane is parked, you know, in the back 40 somewhere. I don't know when this plane last flew. And so we get on the bus, we're headed across the tarmac and I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating this. Another plane is coming in on approach. So we stop so the plane can land. It lands and then it catches on fire right in front of our bus. So we're all sitting there on the tarmac. We can't go forward because there's a burning plane in front of us. And thankfully nobody was hurt, nothing blew up. But like the fire trucks come, they're trying to put it out. We're there on the bus for about 45 additional minutes. Then we navigate around the burnt plane to our backup plane, right? And so we get on the plane and uh, we get up in the air and immediately the guy in front of me lowers his seat back like real fast where I'm like all cramped. You know, I've got like three inches of space. So I decide to lower my seat back to give me a little bit of room. And the guy behind me does one of these. He goes, oh. Like he stops me from lowering it. And then he does this. He, he hits my seat two times, boom, boom, to say, don't try to lower your seat. And I was like, man, like this ain't gonna fly. So I'm like, <sighs> so I, I stand up and I'm like, I'm gonna confront this guy. So I stand up and I turn around and that's when I laid eyes on him for the very first time. He was a very large individual. <laughs> so I quickly aborted that plan and went to plan B. And plan B was to stretch and to pretend like I had to go to the bathroom. That's what that was, right? So just, I mean, we eventually like made it back to Indy, but it wasn't a very comfortable flight 
Uh, my guess is you've been on that flight. And it reminds me of something that author Max Licato said one time. He said that our attitude towards living in this world ought to be very similar to that of being a passenger on a plane. Like the plane isn't like the destination. The plane is taking us to one. And so when the plane lands, like nobody ever sits in the seat and goes, oh man, do we have to get off? You know, can I just sit here in this little seat, you know, and eat my little pretzels and drink my ginger ale forever? No, like as soon as the plane lands, we can't wait to get off the plane. Now the plane ride is necessary. The plane ride can sometimes be enjoyable depending upon what in-flight movies are being, you know, shown. Um, it's oftentimes uncomfortable and cramped, but it's not the destination. It is taking us to one. Now, this is what's on Peter's mind as he writes this short letter to a group of Christians. They were oftentimes referred to as the Christ ones within the Roman Empire. And he says, hey, listen, don't get too comfortable in that seat because you're not going to occupy it forever. And in fact, um, letters like 1 Peter and specifically what we're going to cover today and next week will not make sense unless we understand that we've got to live this life and read this text in view of eternity. Now, I'm just going to kind of keep coming back to that phrase. We can't just, like, as believers, we don't just live our lives with the circumstances we see right in front of us. Now, are they important? Yes. Are they everything? No. So uh, the way I spend my time isn't just in what I can see in front of me. It's in view of eternity. The way that I treat other people uh, is in view of eternity. The way that I handle my finances is in view of eternity. And so Peter is writing to these group of Christians and he calls them foreigners right out of the gates in chapter one. Another word for that could be exile. And he says, don't get too comfortable in this world. Uh, you were destined for eternity. Now that's Peter's thesis. That's why he writes the letter. So we know that it's just going to be a matter of time before he's going to write some things that sound very foreign to our ears. And much of what Peter is going to write, I just want to kind of, you know, cause you to like buckle up right now, because much of what he's going to say in our passage today, I'm just telling you, is going to run against the grain of how you and I have been conditioned to think within this current cultural context in which we live. In fact, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it, that I'm gonna read some things out of 1 Peter and likely you're gonna have an emotional reaction to that. And can I just say, that's okay. That's okay. We shouldn't expect the Bible to just say uh, or to agree with us in every single point. Uh, the Bible is, as it's described, living and active, and it penetrates. So there's going to be some things in which we're going to read it. It's going to be so encouraging to us. There's going to be other things we're going to read it. It's going to bring appropriate conviction into our lives. So here's what I want to ask you. When I read something here in a few minutes, and maybe you get a little bit of an emotional reaction, can you just stop for just a minute and say, uh, just get real curious about that and say, uh, God, what is it that you're trying to say? Why is this in your word? Um, Right before I was getting ready to leave the house today, I, um, I, I get up early on Sunday mornings, like 5.30 and get ready. And then I just spend the rest of the morning just like praying and kind of going over the notes. And, and then when I'm done, I, I'm, I'm, I go into the bedroom and I tell my wife goodbye. And she was in our little sitting area in our bedroom and she was re uh, drinking her coffee and kind of doing her morning devotions. And I said goodbye to her. And she said, 
uh, what she always asked me. She goes, how do you feel about the message today? And I said, well, it's going to be a tricky passage. Like this is going to be tricky to walk through. And she goes, what do you mean? I go, well, we're covering 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, where Peter is going to urge us to submit to government, unjust masters, and spouses. What could go wrong? Right? And so that's where we're kind of going today. And you're going to see right out of the gates, like Peter just goes there. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2 with me. He says, for the, uh, whose sake? Say that, yeah, Lord's sake. Remember that. He says, for the Lord. And once again, we are living our lives for an audience of one. He's writing to believers. You live your life in view of eternity. And so it is for God's sake that you submit to all human authority. Whether the king as head of state or the officials as he is appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. So right out of the gate, uh, Peter drops the S word. The other S word. Submit. Although in some of your minds, you don't see much difference between the two. And I'm just guessing that even just that word, like we haven't even gotten into the application of it yet. Already, there's a little bit of maybe an emotional reaction within you. And by the way, that emotional reaction could be totally legit. Maybe uh, you grew up in a church setting that was highly legalistic. There was no grace and it was actually somewhat abusive. And so this word was used to weapon, it was weaponized against you. Maybe you've got uh, uh, some sort of an experience with a person, uh, maybe that uh, uh, used this word in such a way that it was never intended. What I want to bring you back to is once again, the context in which Peter is writing this. Remember on week one, I said the first rule of effective Bible study is when you read a passage, you have to first ask, who was this originally written to and what was the application for them then Once we clarify that application, then we can make application for us today. Peter was writing to a group of Christians that in society had turned on them. Peter was writing to a group of Christians that would have faced all kinds of unfairness and injustice at every single corner. And he says the way that the world lives is to retaliate. The way that the world lives is to like, uh, you know, to defend yourself. And he says, what I want you to do is why I want you to let God be your audience. For the Lord's sake, live your life with, in view of eternity. Actually, live your life so differently that it stands out to others. So Peter, like to really grasp the weight of what he is, has just said and what he's getting ready to say. Understand, Peter writes this letter from Rome in AD 62 to 63. Uh, when a really, really corrupt leader by the name of Nero was in power. Now, Nero had all kinds of things that he did that was so corrupt. But one of the fresh things that Nero had just done is that he really just sort of loses his mind. There is this mysterious fire that breaks out in Rome and it destroys much of uh, Rome. And we don't really know who exactly... uh, started the fire. Many believe it was Nero himself, but we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that Nero blamed the Christians for it. And so because of that, they were incredibly unpopular and they were being mistreated in every sphere of society. And it is within that context that Peter just wrote that they must submit to all human authority. Now, I think that the reason um, uh, why this feels like such a foreign request is because submission feels unnatural, doesn't it? Like it just feels unnatural. It's not my first impulse. Uh, Several years ago, 
at the risk of you thinking less of me, all right? Uh, but I just want to get real vulnerable. Um, I uh, pulled into Costco to get gas at the Costco gas station. And uh, those of you who've ever done that, you know that it's all one-way traffic through the pumps. And so you've got to get in the right lane where um, uh, uh, it matches up to your gas cap. I didn't know that. So I just automatically, it's like one of the first times I've used it. So I automatically got in the shortest line, which you naturally do, or at least those of you know, you that are rushed and driven like I am. And so I, I get in the lane and I, I get up to the pump and I pulled into the wrong lane. And so it was a right-sided gas pump, uh, but my gas cap is on the left side of my truck. And so I thought, well, uh, no sweat. I'll just flip a U-turn. And so I flipped a U-turn where I'm headed in the different direction of the traffic and I'm, I get out and I'm pumping the gas. And this uh, uh, man comes out of this mysterious little booth, like out of nowhere. I don't know where he was. And he's got this like, you know, yellow neon jacket and he comes up and he's like, sir, and I just pretended like I didn't hear him. And then he comes up and he's like, sir, do you see those arrows? And I pretended like I didn't see them. And then he comes up again and I'm like almost finished you know, getting the, the gas pumped. I'm just trying to get there you know, before he forces me to move. And so he comes up and, and he goes, hey, sir, you need, to get in, you need to stop right now and get in your truck and move. You're facing the wrong direction. Now, here's what I said. Right? I just want to tell you, like, I'm not recommending this and this is not one of my finer moments, all right? But here's what I said. This is honestly what was in my heart. I looked at him and I said, hey, it'll be okay, big guy. Like, that's what I said. Now, I'm just guessing that first service, I, first service is where all the rule followers attend. Because I gave that illustration and they were like, oh, you know. Now, either right now you're going, that's why you're my pastor, right? I love you so much. And then others of you are going, we're finding a different church, right? That, that's, that's what's going on. I'm just wondering, like, is, is that in, within any of you, like me? Like, please say yes, all right, so I don't feel so alone. Like, if the, if the speed limit, yeah, here's where all the rebels are. That's over there, all right? So, so if the speed limit is 70, you're just naturally going to go 75, right? You're happy to follow the rules just as long as the rules make sense. But for the rest of, of you rule followers, and I know I'm married to one, all right, challenging authority, like that just kind of comes naturally. So Peter writes this. This is like so foreign to our ears. We're like, Peter, why would I ever do that? Well, I think it's important to understand that biblical submission is what we would say is unforced. Uh, another word for that would be it's voluntary. This should come from a willing spirit because for whose sake are we doing it? God's. Yeah, the Lord's. And so the verb submit here is in the middle voice. It literally means to place yourself there. You do it. You place yourself in submission. Nobody can demand it of you. Nobody can force. If somebody has to strong arm you into submission, that is not submission. And so what, what's happening here is that Peter is giving a group of Christians who had had all of their freedom stripped away, all of their decision-making opportunities taken away. He's allowing them to make the decision to place themselves in submission. Now, he knows this is going to be a difficult pill to swallow, not only for them then, but maybe even especially for those of us today. So he follows it with a really compelling motivation. Look at verse 13. He says, for the Lord's sake, as we've already covered, you submit. In other words, submission as a believer to the guy in the yellow jacket at the Costco gas station is not dependent upon him being right or even rational. It's I'm doing it to please my heavenly father. And honestly, that day I did not 
Like that was like one of those things where it's just a conviction in my spirit to say, what was that within me? You know, I don't know that I could fully grasp this until like I became a father of um, children that are now growing into young adults. My uh, son is a second year college student. He's a student at a Missouri Southern State University, our hometown. And so he's actually going to school where Lindsay and I grew up. Now, here's the thing that I wasn't anticipating, nor is the thing that I think he was anticipating, is that I got eyes all over that town. <laughs> all right, it's like, I, in fact, he's been gone for two months. And um, there, I've already received a couple of text messages from people that I grew up with that have run into my son. They've met him at church or maybe a football game and they've texted me. And that's always like a little bit nerve wracking when you get a text, you know, from somebody's talking to you about your kid. And, uh, but I've gotten these text messages and they've said this, oh man, we met your son last night. Man, he's so respectful. Like he's so kind, like he was so engaging. Like you and Lindsay have done such a great job raising him. And I got to tell you, like as his dad uh, living 500 miles away that just honored me. This is what Peter is driving at. He says that the point isn't the unjust human authority that you're submitting to. The point is when you do that, here's the word, you are showing the security of your identity as a child of God. That you're actually living with him as your audience. You're like, well, it's unfair. Yeah, you're right. In fact, Peter's going to drive at this. He's going to say, yeah, Jesus was treated unfairly. Jesus was treated with a fair amount of injustice. And yet he still submitted himself as well. Peter goes on in verse 15 to explain that biblical submission, here's the second thing, is that it magnifies the impact that we have. Look at verse 15. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you're free, yet you are God's slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. So what was happening is that these Christians living in Rome had all kinds of false things said about them. So they were accused of setting fire to Rome. Not true. They were accused of cannibalism. The reason why it was because the uh, non-believers uh, heard them talking about taking communion, which was drinking the blood of, and eating the flesh of Jesus. And they're like, well, they're cannibals. And so they were accusing them of that. They accused them of incest because they heard them talk to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's crazy, but that's what they were accused of. They were initially accused of atheism because they didn't worship Caesar or the many other Roman gods. They were being canceled before cancel culture was a thing. And it brings up this really important question for all of us. What do you do? What's your natural reaction when somebody lies about you? When somebody says something that isn't true about who you are? And I don't know about you, but I get defensive. And I try to stand up for myself. And I try to push back. And, and oftentimes I try to discredit them. And usually, uh, most of the time, it does no Good. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, let God fight your battles for you. Then Peter uh, kind of comes along and he says something just dramatically different from how we would have been conditioned in our culture. He says, listen, man, live your life in view of eternity. Now, laying out, out, after laying out this difficult command for the rest of the chapter and on into chapter three, he's going to lay out the difficult applications of this principle. How does this play out in the lives of everyday Christ followers? So look at what he says in verse 17. Respect everyone, 
and love the family of believers, which would be the church community you're connected to. Fear God and respect the king. I just got to say, how much different would our culture be right now if as believers we could just apply that one sentence? Like just that one sentence. So the first application of submission he writes is to the government or to governing authorities. Now this would have been about as unpopular to say then as it is today, but it's important to understand that as Peter writes this, he would not have approved of or endorsed the vast majority of what the government, governing authorities of his day did. If they would have had free elections, which they did not, they did not, they were not in an environment of a democracy, they were in a dictatorship, Peter wouldn't have voted for any of the Caesars. And you think that we have reason to complain about our political leaders, Peter had more. All right, so um, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a wrap sheet list of uh, what, the, what the, the governing authorities of the day did. Nero was the guy who was in office at the time, but him as well as the two Caesars before him, they all rode the crazy train to Cuckoo Town. And the first would have been a guy by the name of Caligula, all right? So Caligula was kind of the reigning ruler of the day before Nero. And shortly after becoming Caesar, he had his mom and his brother killed to make sure that they never challenged his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently cross-dressed and went out in public. He installed his favorite horse as a senator and then promoted him later to consul, all right? Caligula once got mad at the weather and declared war on the false god of Neptune. He had the heads of statues of deities removed and replaced with his own face. All right, that's who he was. After that, uh, you have a guy named Claudius who was a hair less crazy than Caligula, but he was every bit as cruel. And then he handed the throne over to Nero. Now, when I say handed the throne over, I do not mean that he gets voted into office. I mean that uh, Nero's mom had Claudius killed in his sleep so that her baby boy could become king. How sweet. And then you got Nero, who was so corrupt towards the Christians. And it is within this dumpster fire of government that Peter writes to them and says, hey, submit to governing authorities. Now, what does that mean? Well, Peter says earlier in the text that what the government should do is they should punish the wrong and commend what was right. And neither one of those things was happening. So uh, first of all, let me just say this. Is there ever a time as a Christian where we should defy? And if we could just answer that from Scripture itself, we can say yes. So there's several different examples of this. In the Old Testament, when Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to kill all the newborn baby boys... They defied that and they refused. As you know, we just came through a series in Daniel. Daniel and his friends disregarded government orders when the king commanded them to stop praying to the one true God and worship false idols. In the book of Acts, we even read that Peter himself didn't always submit to the government. Peter was told that he could no longer speak about Jesus. He was no longer able to share his faith or to try to convert people. And Peter's response to the authorities in Acts chapter 4 was he said, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And in chapter 5, he says, we must obey God rather than men. So yes, there is biblical precedent for this. Now, we are blessed today to live in an imperfect democracy, not a dictatorship. And part of what that means as good citizens is to vote with conviction and to pray for our elected officials who are in office and hold them accountable. 
However, there is a way for us to do this that honors God. So what does this look like? Once again, this is where maybe many times as Christ followers, we're watching too much daytime news TV and we get all spun up and we lash out in anger, fear, and anxiety. That's an indicator that we are no longer living with eternity in view. That's an indicator that we've lost our confidence in a sovereign God who is ruler and reigner over temporary earthly authorities. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved. What it does mean is that we refuse to become angry or anxious over political rulers. Peter knows that the best way to change the world was not through a political rebellion. And the perfect example of this is Jesus himself. Jesus knew a thing or two about changing the world. And it jumps out at me that Jesus lived in an unjust and unrighteous government setting, yet we do not have a single record of him attacking the government of his day. He never led a protest. He never led a civil rebellion. In fact, he had a chance to lead one one time whenever they came to him and they said, hey, you know, what what should we give to, to Caesar? Tell us what you would do. And he goes, well, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God God's what is God's. He never spoke up at the injustice of his own trial. He only spoke of the kingdom of God. In fact, they they wanted to make Jesus king. They wanted Jesus to run for office. In John chapter 6, there was this political movement called the Zealots, and they wanted Jesus to overthrow the oppressive government of his day, but he refused. And he seemed to understand that government and politics, as important as they are, are limited. And instead, he chose a different way to make an impact to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is what Peter is talking about. The next application that Peter drives at is to submit within the workplace. Look at verse 18. He goes, you who are slaves. Once again, there's gonna be an emotional reaction when we hear that word. Hold on to that. I'm gonna circle back around. He goes, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you. Not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. The first thing that I would say right out of the gates with this passage is that Peter is not advocating slavery. And the reason why I can say that is because he speaks directly against it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We can go to the Old Testament and it speaks against it there as well in Exodus chapter 21. We read a passage like this. This is where the good rule of Bible study is so important. We've got to read it within their context and what it would have meant to them first before we make uh, application for us today. We read this on this side of history and with America's history with slavery and immediately we think about that. In the first century, Peter's not saying that slavery is right but it was different in the sense that this was more closely associated with a work environment. Slaves or servants in, their, in that day, it was, uh, race played no role. Education was encouraged. They could own property. Many of them uh, eventually obtained their own freedom. Many actually chose to stay with their masters because they were so well treated. So the application for us today is uh, simply this. Any of you in a work environment where your boss is unfair? Any of you in a work environment where you're like, man, this is just an impossible situation for me to navigate? And Peter would say, you are first a Christian. 
So do your job with God as your audience. I remember my very, very first job between my eighth and ninth grade year uh, of high school. Uh, I got a summer job at a trucking company. It was one of my dad's friends. He owned the uh, business. And I would show up there at six in the morning, uh, every morning that summer uh, to break freight. And uh, so I, what that means is I would go onto the um, little loading dock, all the semis would pull up and then I would unload all the semi trucks, reorganize them and then reload them so that way they could deliver their freight where they were going for that day. It was hard work, it was a hot job. And I remember one day, my, my boss had, had a temper. And I remember one day he was on the phone in his office. He was having a conversation that I could tell he was not excited about having. And he was watching me through the little window in his office as I was working. And I could just feel his eyes on me. And uh, I was uh, trying to unload this pallet of uh, yard lamps that were all shrink wrapped together. And I was having a hard time with it. I couldn't, I couldn't get it maneuvered by myself. And so um, he hangs up. And he walks out of his office and he comes right towards me, pushes me out of the way, he says, move. And he picks the thing up in the air and then he just throws it on the ground and just like shatters all the yard lamps. And then he did this. He went, <sighs> you could tell he was just, it was a release for him. And then he goes, clean it up. And I remember thinking there right then and there, I need to stay in school. That, that's, that's what I need to do, all right? It's an important lesson. Now, maybe, uh, maybe you've got a, a worse example than that, but maybe you work for a boss that's corrupt, maybe is abusive in some way. Here, here's, here's the thing. P Peter says, hey, hey, let the first place that you begin is to recognize your identity as a Christ follower. And he says, in, in that time, this doesn't mean that you subject yourself to abuse over and over and over again. Doesn't mean that you just stay silent in the face of injustice. What this means is, is that you're viewing your job with eternity in mind. And you're recognizing that, that the call to Christ is a call to be on mission with him. Just like Daniel in Babylon, God loves that boss. God loves those co co-workers. And quite possibly, he's placed you in that um, really difficult environment for you to provide a different example from everything that they see everywhere else in the world. This is tough to apply. But this is the idea where we need his spirit helping us. God, I want to conduct myself in the face of this kind of unfairness and injustice in a way that brings honor to you and makes other people stop and say, what is it that's so different about you? Peter knows this is not going to be easy to hear or to apply. And so once again, he follows it with a compelling motivation. Look at verse 21. Here's why you should do this. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. What that means is, is that when this becomes incredibly difficult to do, and it will be, you, can, you and I, we cannot do this in our own power. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who gave us this example. Jesus was not thrilled about going to a cross. In fact, he asked God, God, if there is any other way, could, could you show me what it is? But he submitted to the will of the Father. His trial was illegal. It should have never happened to begin with. The accusations made against him were blatant lies. He suffered unjustly and he was willing to become a foreigner in this world so that you and I could become citizens of heaven. Jesus was willing to leave home so you and I could come home. Jesus was willing to be called stranger in this world so that you and I could be called a friend of God. He was willing to be forsaken by his father so that we could be accepted by him. He is our example. He's our example. So 
Peter starts with government, then he goes to a corrupt workplace, and then he's going to finish it off within a marriage, right? Now, I want to read these next verses verses in the ESV because I think it brings some real clarity to this. It says this, likewise, meaning this is a continuation of the application. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, notice he did not say women be subject to men. He didn't say that. He said wives subject to your husband so that even if some do not obey the word, non-believing, inactive Christians uh, who, who they may be married to, they say this, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Once again, maybe an emotional reaction that rises up, maybe for good reason. Here's, maybe you got a bunch of questions as we read that passage. Uh, maybe here's the first one. Why are the wives mentioned first? Now, now, Peter's going to mention the guys. So guys, buckle up, because what he says, <laughs> buckle up, all right? <laughs> why, why, why does he start with the wives first? And I think there's just a very practical reason why he does. Because in the first century church, the majority of that church would have been made up of women who were coming without their husbands. There's actually not a lot that has changed. Roughly like 60, 65% of those who are engaged in our church are women. Not all of them come without their husbands. I'm not trying to stereotype. I do know that there are some husbands that come here without their wives. I'm just saying the vast majority in this first century church would have been women. Here's, here's the specific context for them. And many of you know this. Uh, within the Greek civilization, it was really tough to be a woman. They were treated like property. They didn't have a say in court. Um, they, uh, their very livelihood was connected to being married uh, to a man. And if they would have been left, if they would have been divorced, it put them at significant financial risk. Now, here's what was happening in the first century church. There uh, were these um, married couples that when they got married, neither one of them were Christians. And then she gives her life to Christ. And now all of a sudden the husband's going, whoa, 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 wait a second. I didn't marry a Christian. This is a bait and switch. And for many of them, they saw this as reason enough to divorce their wives and leave them. So, so understand this, for a woman to become a Christian after she was already married, that was a significant risk. And many of these ladies, God had captured their hearts and changed their lives. And that was a risk they were willing to make. And now they found themselves in this unfair environment of a marriage in which quite possibly their husbands were being stubborn and mean spirited. And Peter says to them in the face of this, he says, be subject to your unbelieving husbands, submit to him. Now, now what, it, what does he not say? He does not say that your husband is superior and you are inferior. He does not say that. He doesn't say your husband is president and you're vice president. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say your husband is Batman and you're Robin. Like, that's not what he says. He says voluntarily, like you don't have to do this. Voluntarily submit to him, be subject to him. Why? So that he might be one so that God might get a hold of his heart. One of the things, like even in my own life, the person who has the most influence over me more than anybody else is my wife. God speaks through her. And this is this idea where he's saying, hey, hey, ladies, without maybe even a word from you, 
The way that you're living your life, remember, keep in mind what he's just said about government in the workplace. The way that you're living your life would quite possibly stop him in his tracks and he would go, there's something different about you, even if he doesn't acknowledge it at first. And what's happening is, is that you are propping him up to get a view of God that he would never get by any sermon. I love what Beth Moore says about submission. Here's how she defines it. Submission is ducking so that God can punch my husband. I love that. (laughs) Uh, some of you, um, some of you might, some of you might um, know uh, Phil and uh, Mary Jo Wright. Uh, they have been in our church for decades, and uh, just a dearly loved couple in our church. And Phil's been on our staff for years and years and years. He served as an elder for a while, and uh, Mary Jo has been involved in our worship ministry, like going all the way back in the 1970s. And I remember right after I got to Trader's Point, I remember talking to them, and Phil was telling me a story and. You know, Phil's like just like a giant in the faith. And, uh, um, but uh, when uh, he and Mary Jo uh, were married uh, several decades ago, they had young kids at home and Mary Jo gave her life to Christ. And she started attending Trader's Point. And Phil was not only a non-believer, Phil was an adamant atheist. And he was very smart, very antagonistic, had a sharp wit about him. And he was working as a brick mason during the day. And he was really annoyed that Mary Jo had become a Christian and that she was so involved in the church. And in fact, uh, she had joined the choir. And so she was singing on Sundays and then she was going to choir practice uh, uh, in the evening uh, uh, during the week. And Phil was so annoyed when he would come home from a long day of work and she was gone because she was at choir practice and he was there with the kids and trying to get dinner ready and all this kind of stuff. And he was like, you know what? It was causing arguments between the two of them. And he told me, he said, Aaron, I got to this place where um, I was going to come home and demand that she quit the choir because I didn't want her out anymore. And so so he goes, I went home fully prepared to have that argument with her. And he said he walked in the door one evening and she was already home. He was expecting her to be gone. And she was in the kitchen and he walked up behind her and he said, hey, I thought you were going to be gone. And she turned around and he said her whole disposition was so Christ-like. And he said she wasn't aggressive, she wasn't passive aggressive, she wasn't angry. He just said she turned around and she looked me right in the eye and she said, Phil, I love you more than anything else. And I've decided that I'm gonna step away from the choir because it's creating too much tension between us. She goes, "Uh, I, I love Jesus, but I love you too. And I'm willing to make this sacrifice. He said to me, Aaron, it wasn't any sermon. It wasn't any argument. It wasn't any apologetic that got a hold of my heart. He goes, that was the precise moment that Jesus began to get a hold of my heart. And I thought something about this is real. This is what Peter is talking about. And with that said, I know for a fact that there's a number of ladies listening to this right now and that encourages you. And for some of you, that discourages you because you're like, Aaron, like I've been doing this. Like for years, I've been praying for my husband, my non-believing husband, or maybe my husband that believes, but he's inactive. Like he's not really following after God. And, and I've, 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 I've tried to submit to him. I've tried to to keep his, his interest um, in mind, but um, he's still just so stubborn. And Peter, I think, acknowledges that as well. In verse one, he says, even if he refuses to obey, and even, here's the thing, ladies, as men are speaking as one, we're proud. And so even if you're impacting us, we may not let you know it right away. Peter says, you continue to set an example. I realize that others of you maybe are asking, well, well wait a second, 
What about like an abusive, angry husband? Like, should I submit then? Can I just say very clearly, no. Remember what I said earlier? This is a voluntary thing. Like you don't have to, to do this. If he is doing something illegal, harmful, or destructive, there's nothing here that says that you need to subject yourself to that. You don't need to subject yourself to physical, mental, psychological, or sexual abuse. It does not mean that you can't make decisions or express your feelings within a marriage. And any man who tells you otherwise is simply misreading the text. And Peter realizes that there are going to be some selfish, narcissistic boys disguised as men who will hear this and use it as justification to continue their destructive behavior towards their wives. So he addresses that in verse 7. In the same way, you husbands must. Actually, this isn't voluntary. He just lays out a flat-out command. He goes, you must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are. All that means is you likely outweigh her. Right? Physical in stature. But she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. If that sounds like a threat, it's because it's a threat. Right? So listen to this. He's saying, in other words, men, do not expect God to listen to you if you are mistreating or manipulating your wives. Do not expect your wife to submit to you unless you are submitting yourself to Jesus. It is unfortunate that this is such a minefield of a passage today. I don't think it needs to be. If we had more husbands leading like Jesus by honoring and sacrificing for their wives, I don't think we'd have any problem with this passage. And then Peter finishes up. I didn't think I'd get very many claps at that. So, <laughs> hey, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. He finishes up the passage by addressing all Christians collectively. Here's where he lands the plane. All right, verse eight. Finally, all of you, should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Keep a humble attitude. You, you may not be right. You likely aren't. Verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate, retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. I just want to end with this. Everything within our culture says the exact opposite of what we just read, doesn't it? Here's what I just want to present to you. Is it working? No, it's not working. So what if we just got real curious about it and said, God, how about we try your way? And I'm just going to sit down on the inside. And I, the next time I feel compelled to defend myself, I, I'm just not going to do that. Like the next time I, I feel compelled to curse someone, I'm actually going to do the exact opposite of what I feel and I'm going to bless them. The, the next time I get angry or upset, I'm just going to take a deep breath and I'm just going to say, God, I, it's clear I need to submit this area of my life to you. And some of you may go, man, what we just read, this seems impossible. And that's because it is. You cannot do this in your own power. We need the spirit of the living God within us, helping us do this. And at the end of the day, that, that's really what it means to be a Christian. You submit to the spirit of God, that still small voice that is speaking to you, convicting you, beckoning you. That, that, if, if there's anything that I want you to apply, it's that. 
And so today, is there any area of your life in which the Spirit of God is beckoning you to take action, beckoning you to obey, beckoning you to run against the grain of your impulses? And are you willing to listen to that? That, my friends, is where true transformation begins. And so just in our remaining moments together, just in the quietness of the room, let's just submit ourselves to him. Father, I thank you so much for hard passages because one of the things that I've learned is that it's usually the hard passages that bring about the most transformation. We're not afraid of it. We're not gonna shy away from it. We're not gonna edit your word. We, got, we wanna get real curious about it and know that as our heavenly father, it's there for a reason. So God, I pray today that you would bind up the woundedness. There's somebody here that's been hurt in the name of submission. And so Father, I pray that you would bind up their wounds. I pray that you'd bring healing to their lives. I pray that they would not dismiss this because of their woundedness, but that you might redeem their pain. That you would help them to see what it is that this really means. For those of us, God, that are sort of rebellious at heart like me, God, I just pray that you would help me more and more to just submit every area of my life to recognize that I'm not always right. In fact, most of the time I'm wrong and I need to be in tune with your spirit as you are speaking to me and in me and through me. God, right now this world is hurting, it's divided, it's a dark, dark place and we need more believers on mission with you who are willing to go against the grain of culture, living our lives in view of eternity. Help us to not be too comfortable in this plane seat because this is not where we're gonna stay forever. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.